Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode that you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. I'm Wade Padgett. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. And I'm Tane Kell, and I'm also here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I worry about Tane sometimes. Since he's retired, he's falling apart. I know. I sleep late. This is way too early for me. But uh, All right. So, folks, we are back at the UGA College of Law. Yay. Shout out to Jim. Hey, Jim. And so... He just waved. He doesn't have a microphone. He doesn't have a microphone. So, we, Tane, went recently. We attended probably the last one you'll ever attend. The summer conference for the judges. Well, I hope not. I mean, I did a good job on my presentation. I hope yeah, they invite but, me back. But you're not going to go sit through classes anymore, probably. Oh, no, heck no. So in doing that, we had an awesome presentation by our buddy. Parag Shaw. Shout out to Parag hey, Shaw. Hey, Parag. I barely recognized him with all the hair. I know, man. Um, he has the flowing locks now. He's now the CEO. And if I say this wrong, I'm sorry of miles mediation miles mediation yeah and um he 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 really does a great job with evidence and if you ever need any any handbooks just a little quickie little what's the code section kind of handbooks on evidence or criminal law he's got a set um we probably need to put some sort of link to to his product on our website because it's it, they're really good and they're yeah. very helpful yeah now to be fair Parag tried a whole bunch of trials before, way back in the day. He actually tried one in front of me, and I was the one who, when I was in the Augusta circuit, and I was the one that made him quit practicing law. Yeah, and I heard you drove him out of the practice. <laughs> he actually specifically told me that, that it was your fault. But he has he's continued to remain abreast of the law, and he was a great presenter for us in the Superior Court Judges uh, Summer Conference, and and he's a good friend, and, and I count him as, as a buddy. So... With that being said, so you ripped this off from him. So that's why we got this big buildup for that. So this is remember, a total. Remember, shout out covers plagiarism. That's right. Yeah, as long as we give him a shout out, we can't be accused of plagiarism. We're going to try to separate out some of these evidence topics as we go along. It's going to seem a little random, but but it it kind of follows the the structure of the evidence rules by and large. You know, the four hundred rules, the five hundred rules, the six hundred rules, et cetera. Sure. So you want to talk about our first one? Yeah. So the first thing we're going to touch on is um, consciousness of guilt or the so-called uh, no innocent man flees type of evidence. And uh, there's a case, recent case, 2022, uh, Harris v. State, um, that says essentially evidence relevant under Rule 401 um, – a fact we all, all know well. It's it, it's it's that's how we measure <laughs> whether uh, evidence is relevant. Um, in this felony murder case, there was evidence that the defendant was eventually located by law enforcement officers after the shooting, and when he was found, he barricaded himself in a room armed with several weapons. That evidence was admitted at trial, with the trial court reasoning that the circumstances of the defendant's arrest, including evidence of guns and ammunition, were relevant to the defendant flight, his consciousness of guilt, and the fact that he armed himself for the encounter with law enforcement. Now, the Georgia Supreme Court, in, in deciding Harris, noted there's a whole bunch of Harris cases. Yeah, there are. Noted that the 11th Circuit has explained that it is universally conceded that the fact that of an accused flight, escape from custody, resistance to arrest, concealment, assumption of a false name, and related conduct are admissible 
as evidence of the consciousness of guilt and thus guilt itself. And they, they cite those cases from um, prior decisions of the Georgia Supreme Court, but also decisions of the 11th Circuit. Now, Tane, that leads to a, a, a gong in the wilderness sort of sound, if Stephen can find that sound. This oh. is important. Yeah. Tell the folks what it that does not mean. It doesn't mean that you get a jury charge on flight. That's just the law. It has been since 1990 that you can introduce evidence of it, but you can't tell the jury they should consider it as consciousness of guilt. What the lawyers do with it in argument, that's a, that's a whole other matter. But the court cannot charge consciousness of guilt from flight. And that's from the Renner case from 1990. Prior to that, that was a jury charge now. Yeah. So just understand that doesn't mean the fact that it comes in means that you get a jury charge on it. Um, they said that the, in the Harris case, back to the Harris case, and it, they sort of concluded with, in a circumstantial case like this one, the need for this type of evidence is greater because it provided an additional set of facts from which the jury was authorized to infer Harris's guilt. And so, long story short, uh, the circumstances of the rest, if it looks like it was an attempt to evade or plan for a shootout or whatever, all that becomes admissible in this case as consciousness of guilt. Yeah. So let's go to 404B. Let's go back to our, our old, good old friend. Our old man. Fi- let's yeah. plow that field again. Wait, we can't do this without McBurney. Can we like put a picture of him up? Okay. I, I am I'm gonna draw a little quick picture of McBurney and we'll just put it up on the board. That's a great picture. He looks kinda like Mr. Peanut. Yeah, he's got those little squinty eyes. Nice. Yeah. So we have recorded and the reason Tane says that seriously, uh Judge McBurney has been a great friend of this podcast and mm-hmm. a great friend of judges everywhere, and he is a very smart judge who has done a lot with 404B. And we think that we have a case, a, more, a, a recent case, that bears some isolated discussion. We're not trying to open the door to 404, 404B again, but you'll remember, Tane, that 404B says evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts are generally not admissible, but they can be admissible for limited purposes, and then there's a list, right? Right. Now, that's an including but not limited to list, but I haven't heard a lot of people get really into the not limited to part. Yeah, right. One of those is knowledge. And so there will be people that will offer 404B evidence, usually prosecutors, to prove knowledge. Now, we have talked at some length about what intent means and what knowledge means and what preparation means and all of that. Too often, the prosecutor will offer, say, Judge, I'm offering this uh, 404B evidence to prove motive, opportunity, intent. I don't need you to read me the statute. Right, right. I need you to do the heavy lifting and decide what which horse you're going to ride. Yeah, and, t- and two two things about that. Number one... Those are questions that you as the judge are asking before trial. Yeah, we're not doing this anywhere near. <laughs> yeah, trial. We, we are doing this way in advance. And secondly, um, it, you have the obligation to ask very specific questions about these types of things. So when somebody says it's evidence of knowledge, knowledge, here, here's your question. Knowledge of what? Exactly. <laughs> because we have discussed all these exceptions right. in prior episodes. We're not going to do it all here again. But this recent case of Wright versus State, 362 Georgia Appeals 867, 
made an observation that we thought might prove helpful when the evidence of other crimes is offered to prove, quote unquote, knowledge. knowledge. So, Tane, tell the folks what the other cases have said that when you try yeah. to introduce for knowledge, you, you're sort of going where? Yeah. So other cases have said that knowledge, the knowledge exception, only really applies to things like unique skills that the defendant allegedly possesses. Things like safe cracking or bomb making or something like that. Like, oh, he's he he was online looking at you know bomb making tips from Al Qaeda. Previously was convicted. Oh yeah, yeah. Or he yeah he's been he he's a he's a lifelong safe cracker. Or you know he's got uh he's got mad skills in the area of uh, burglary in the first degree. I told a guy one time. You are a terrible burglar. <laughs> you now, have been caught like 20 times. You're, you're being facetious about unique knowledge yes. about burglary in yes. first degree. Right? I, am, okay. I am. I'm sorry. So the knowledge exception can apply, and I did have one of these cases one time, to having specific knowledge of facts. For example, to know that you are not wanted at this house, that you continue to enter a, with, that it's vacant, that is criminal trespass. That prior knowledge, you can use the prior conviction of criminal trespass to prove this conviction of criminal trespass or burglary to prove criminal trespass or, or whatever. So it can be relevant to specific knowledge. Knowledge, unfortunately, too many of our prosecutors come in and say, Judge, this goes to his knowledge. <laughs> Again, your question is knowledge of what? Right. Um. There, Tane, I don't know if you remember, there was some reckless conduct cases when HIV uh, first came on the scene and unfortunately yeah. has remained on the scene. Yeah. The, the fact that the defendant knew he was HIV positive would be knowledge relevant to the underlying crime of reckless conduct. That's right. That's the Green versus State case, 352 Georgia Appeals, 284. It's a 2019 case, so still fresh uh, fresh law out there. So the right case, and the reason we wanted to talk about it, and the reason that uh, Mr. Shaw talked about it to us, he'll be so glad I called him Mr. Shaw. <laughs> yes. When the defendant alleges he was unaware that a crime was being committed at all, the knowledge exception may well apply. where Even where there is no special knowledge of talent is required, the court says, to commit the charged crime. However, other acts should not be admitted simply to show that the defendant is capable of committing a crime like this one. So in Wright, the defendant denied ownership of a bag that contained a large amount of drugs. He had a prior conviction for drugs. He didn't deny knowing the drugs were inside. He didn't denied knowing that the bag existed or that he had anything to do with right. said bag. That's not my bag. The Court of Appeals held in right that because the defendant denied ownership of the bag, that his prior convictions for drug possession were inadmissible in this drug possession case under the knowledge exception. So they reversed that one. So, Tane, I'm going to talk for a minute about what some people might call reverse 404B evidence. That somebody else must did it. Tane, you and I are fans of podcasts. I love podcasts, yeah. We like those true crime podcasts sometimes. Absolutely. So you'll hear about these trials, particularly in California, trials, excuse me, particularly in California, where they talk about the judge would not allow evidence that somebody else committed the crime because they didn't meet some standard or threshold. And mm -hmm. I've always wondered, huh, as a judge of Superior Court in Georgia, I wonder if we have such law. Lo and behold, we do. Ding, ding, ding. Shazam. Shazam. 
<laughs> um, and I am going to absolutely hack this name, so I apologize in advance. I think it's Hawkpatton, but it could be Hawkpatton. It could be Hawkpatton. Hawkpatton. Okay, H O U N K P A T I N. It's so new; it only has a southeast second site. 2022 case. The Georgia Supreme Court held that before a defendant can admit third-party evidence that the third party committed the crime, two things must be shown. Tell the people what the two things are, Tane. Number one, the proffered evidence must raise a reasonable inference of the defendant's innocence. And number two, must directly connect the other person with the corpus delecti or show that the other person has recently committed a crime of the same or similar nature. Now, that sounds a little abstract, so let me try to tell you some facts of this case. In this case, you'll notice I've skipped the defendant's name. Hawkpatton. Hawkpatton. Whatever. The defendant was charged with killing a child by essentially squeezing the child to death. That was the allegation. At trial, the defendant now, this is the defendant trying to get 404B evidence in, wanted to introduce evidence that the other children in the home had abused the deceased child prior to the child's death. There was pretrial notice and all of that. The trial court allowed the defendant to testify about other incidents between the children, you know, how the children would fight or whatever, but did not allow defects records, which, according to the defendant, allegedly recounted objective findings that acts by the other children were committed against the deceased. The appellate court noted that none of those incidents recounted in the defects records were remotely similar to the acts that gave rise to the victim's death in this case, and none of those incidents included in the records occurred near the time of the child's death. But basically, it gave us some guide work, some guidelines, I guess, that when the defendant in a criminal trial not only says alibi, but says, well, what about this guy? What about that guy? Well, he could have done it. He had a beef with him. You can't do that unless you can can sort of cross both of these thresholds. Yes. Uh, it's a two-part test. As we said, you basically have to show the proffered evidence raises a reasonable inference of the defendant's in, in, innocence, and then it must directly connect the other person with uh, the, the subject matter of the crime. <laughs> Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So, Tane, we have recorded recently some other impeachment episodes, and we got a brand new impeachment case 
under 609A1 and A2. Why don't you tell the people what the case is and why A1 and A2 are different? My thought is maybe somebody on the appellate courts is listening to the Good Judgment podcast. That's my thought, but yeah. So, impeachment of a defendant with a prior with prior convictions. Um, OCGA section 24-6-609A1 begins by noting that evidence of a prior conviction can be used to impeach any witness except the accused in a criminal case. The rule then goes on to note that the trial court must perform a Rule 403 analysis, you know, the uh, analyzing whether the uh, probative value is outweighed by the prejudicial value, um, and sets forth then additional parameters concerning the use of prior convictions to impeach a witness. So that's A1. A2, that's 609A2, says any witness, including the accused can be impeached by a criminal conviction involving a crime of dishonesty, what would, what I think Millich has called crimin falsi. So not to get sidetracked, both of these code sections require a 403 analysis. They have time constraints on the prior convictions. We have a whole other episode on impeachment. Go listen right, to it. Right. But the holding in Robinson v. State, 359, Georgia Appeals 38. And Tane, tell people not to worry about writing down these sites. Yeah, because you can go and get our outline for all of these episodes at goodjudgepod.com. That's our website. So folks, tell I mean, Tane, tell the folks what Robinson said and what they did. Sure. In Robinson, the state wanted to impeach the defendant with evidence that the defendant was previously convicted of the crime of burglary. The prosecutor argued uh, that it was offered under subsection A2 as a crime of dishonesty. In so doing, the trial court didn't perform the required balancing test mandated for any impeachment evidence offered under subsection A1. Instead, the trial judge agreed that burglary qualified as a crime of dishonesty and allowed the evidence. Now, folks, again, I mean, just throw some magic words in there that show that you've done some sort of 403 analysis. I mean, if you just say the words 403, that's at least going to help at some point to, uh, to to show that you're doing the analysis that you're supposed to do. And, and, in and this part case, of that analysis, Tane, you went through in the impeachment podcast, you, you talked about when the accused is the person being impeached, you must do more, right? Exactly. There's a there's a more specific test for when the accused is testifying. And go back to that episode, and we'll give you the exact uh, the exact requirements there. Robinson, the outcome was reversed. You know that that outcome we really don't like. Yeah, I mean, if we got to do this once, let's just do it once. Yeah, exactly. So, there was no evidence they said at the, in the Robinson decision that the prior burglary involved any sort of unique deceit or false statement. Therefore, as a general rule, burglary is not a crime of dishonesty. It's not an A2. It's an A1. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. You're normally, burglaries are occurring when nobody else is around. It's just a breaking in and taking stuff. So the Robinson court, the Robinson case, if you want a really quick note on that balancing test that must be um, used whenever you're going to impeach a witness, we'll just do a reminder real quick, Tane. Yeah. Number one, uh, you look at the kind of felony and its impeachment value. Can't be a misdemeanor because it's a defendant. That's right. Number two, the time of the conviction and the defendant's subsequent history. Over 10 years is a problem. Number three, similarity between the past crime and the charged crime. Self-evident. 
Number four, importance of the defendant's testimony. Mm. And number five, credibility of the, I'm sorry, centrality of the credibility issue. Is this something that's really... Is it it like a one witness case? Yeah. Or a, a purely circumstantial case? Exactly. All right. Next issue, lay witnesses... Opinion on the authenticity of writing. <laughs> Do you think that your mom could identify your handwriting? Uh, not, not could she read it? Could she identify? It? She would. She would not only identify it. She would be very critical of it. She <laughs> cannot see anything that I have written that she does not say how horrible my handwriting is. So yeah. In Spillers versus Brinson, civil case, Tate, three sixty one yeah. Georgia Appeals seven seventy one. This is a twenty twenty one case. This was a will contest, Tane, involving... A good old will contest. My wife loves those. <laughs> yeah, contesting the authenticity of the decedent's signature, mm-hmm. okay? In opposition to summary judgment, this is going to become an important point. This mm-hmm. was a motion for summary judgment, and in opposition to summary judgment, the sister of the deceased testator testified that the signature on that document was not her, her sister's genuine signature. Mm-hmm. In a fairly lengthy opinion discussing Rules 701 and then 901... You know, 701 is the lay witness, 901 is the authenticity. Mm -hmm. The Court of Appeals noted that Rule 701 allows a non-expert witness to give testimonial material facts. And in discussing 901, the Court of Appeals noted that non-expert testimony is admissible on the issue, issue, and this is in the statute, of the genuineness of handwriting Mm -hmm. based upon familiarity, not acquired for the purposes of litigation. In other words, I live with you. I've seen it a thousand times. Yeah. I'm not an expert who came in and looked at a whole bunch of your signatures after the fact and then said, well, this one doesn't seem genuine. And we've included this case only because it has sort of a, an interesting little side note, and we try to only cover stuff that's interesting here for our awesome listener or yeah. our sirs. <laughs> Both of them. Remember, the evidence that was offered by the decedent's sister was being offered to refute that her signature was genuine on the beneficiary form, right? Mm-hmm. Tell the folks what the Court of Appeals noted. The Court of Appeals said the lay opinion testimony in this case is not being offered to authenticate a piece of evidence. It is being offered to challenge the authenticity of a document relied upon by the estate. The change of beneficiary form, that's, that's where the signature was located. But it is not apparent from the plain language of OCGA section 24-9-901 that the code section governs the admissibility of evidence offered to challenge a document's authenticity. So in other words, 901 says that lay lay testimony can can be used to authenticate or prove the genuineness. But then what about the lack of genuineness? The Court of Appeals said, you know what? That doesn't say anything about that. And so um, we don't think it has anything to do with this. So anyway, I just thought that was an interesting thing. If you ever found yourself, people arguing over the authenticity of some writing. So, Tane, we now come to our favorite. I know. I'm I'm just kind of rubbing my hands together in anticipation because we get to talk about our old friend, Hearsay. Wade, tell us a little bit about co-conspirator statements and hearsay. Tane, you know how we talk about this and we talk about there are things that are not hearsay and then there are exceptions to the hearsay rule, right? Exactly, yes. 801 defines hearsay. Mm -hmm. And it defines what is not hearsay. That's right. 803 are the in 804 and 
subsequent are the exceptions to the hearsay rule. Yes. If something's not hearsay, you never reach 803. That is correct. There's no reason for an exception if it doesn't if it doesn't start out as hearsay. There, there's no exception if it's not a part of the rule. Right? <laughs> there you go. So under a co-conspirator statement, there have been a number of recent decisions dealing with the co-conspirator statement, and we're not going to keep going over the same ones that just cite the same points over and over again. But mm -hmm. the, remember, a co-conspirator statement is not hearsay. Yeah. In the definition, they say, well, the party's own statement is not hearsay. And by extension, that of an agent or a co-conspirator made during the furtherance of a conspiracy is not hearsay. So you never reach 803. You never talk about an exception. But there got to be some rules, right, Tane? Yeah. So we have this new case, or relatively new case, a 2021 case, Stafford versus the state. Uh, it reinforced that basic or a basic principle that's associated with co-conspirator statements. To be admissible as a co-conspirator statement, the statement had to be made in furtherance of the conspiracy. Statements which are essentially confessions of the crime or merely spill-the-beans statements, we've called them in the past, as to the crime, are not co-conspirator statements, and therefore, they're not admissible. And, and this sort of is a hard one to do the mental gymnastics to get to. But if you think about it, co-conspirator statements that are in furtherance of the crime are what are defined as not being part of hearsay. So I just chuckle every time I think about former Chief Justice Namias or Melton. They're saying, I know, let's write spill the beans. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted I just kind of chuckle. Anyway. I wonder if some if some uh, you know clerk threw that in and said, let's see if they catch it. Yeah. So uh, we don't know what beans. to really call it, so let's call it spill the beans. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Rule eight oh four. And I'll be honest with you, I don't really remember using or seeing a lot of eight oh four. We spent way too much time on dying declarations in law school because it sounded really cool. <laughs> But 804, we really don't don't use a whole lot. But remember, 804 is an is exception. We've decided it's hearsay. There's an exception, mm -hmm. and the the declarant is unavailable. Mm -hmm. Okay, even though we don't see many cases, there was a recent one called Morrell or Morrell M O R R E L L versus the state, a 22 case from the Supreme Court that re that reiterated that in order to have a hearsay, any kind of hearsay, admitted under an exception found found under 804, the evidence in the record is going to have to show reasonable, good faith efforts were made to procure the witness's attendance. It makes sense, but here is that just one of those things to put in your trial notebook as a reminder. Yeah, I had one that was dead on point on this one time, and, and we actually had kind of a lengthy hearing about all the efforts that the state had made to procure the witness before we uh, were going to rule, before I would rule on the availability of that witness. And in fact, at the end, I ruled that the state hadn't yet showed that the witness was unavailable for trial because we were still a week out. And the state said, Ooh, okay, we'll make some more efforts to get the witness here by the date of trial. And lo and behold, they actually were able to procure the witness by the wow. time of trial and, and, and rather than the witness being unavailable. So so think about that. I mean, the timing of, of, of what you're going to talk about here makes a difference. And you may make a pretrial ruling contingent upon no additional evidence being produced. That's know? right. That's right. So, Tane, remember the rule that broke our evidence rules? Yeah. You know, our old pre-2013 rules – 
Yeah. It was what we called the necessity exception. Yes. <laughs> and it had just completely it swallowed, swallowed the rule. The rule. <laughs> yes. And so basically you could get anything in, availability be damned, if it was really important. And it was like, mm, we got to put this genie back in the bottle somehow. Yeah, it's like, but judge, we really need this. So <laughs> okay. the federal rules have a residual exception, mm-hmm. not a necessity exception. And that is Rule 807. But you, I'm going to tell you that this new case, Tain, of Ash, and then I think there's actually another one. Oh, yeah, Ward. Ward. Mm. But basically they said, first off, appellate decisions dealing with the, nece- the old necessity exception are not relevant at all here. That's under Ash. Mm-hmm. They're just not going to let you, the Supreme Court says, don't even start that. Yeah, let's, let's not try to graph those two things together. They're separate. Keep them separate. But then tell everybody about what Ward talked about. Sure. So the court said statements under 807 are considered sufficiently trustworthy, not because of the credibility of the witness reporting them in court, but because of the circumstances under which they were originally made. So in other words, what what that witness is saying or the reason that we're putting them forward in court doesn't make any difference. What we're looking at is how did this statement come to be made in the first place? Unfortunately, 807 became whatever the, the necessity exception under the old rules became this very broad highway that prosecutors would try to introduce almost any not a dying declaration. That's not the right thing to say. But but where where you knew the circumstances of the relationship was sour before the defendant allegedly killed the victim. And there were best friends who knew confidential information. And therefore, they could just say pretty much anything because they said it confidentially in, in a very close relationship. There are some same characteristics, says Ward and says Ash. But just remember... It is our job as judges to keep this lead at a reasonable level. Read those cases. You're going to find that they're, that even the appellate judges are begging trial judges, please don't, don't let in the kitchen sink under this uh, residual exception. Make people hit these points, and we're going to feel good with it. But remember, it's not about what was said or or how credible that person that is here said it. What's more important is the circumstances under which the usually the victim and the deceased and that person shared the communication. Excellent point. And folks, again, if you need the citations for any of these cases we've discussed today, don't forget to go to our website at goodjudgepod.com. Reach out to us if you'd like to uh, for questions or comments or uh, any suggestions for the podcast at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And Wade, they can even follow us on our uh, our new our LinkedIn. LinkedIn page. They yeah. can find us and then they can go to the Good Judgment Podcast and they can get notified that we're going to have upcoming episodes so they don't have to check their podcast provider like that's right well because we're on most of the big ones yeah spotify itunes apple sure we're on all those but but no big deal (laughs) but but they don't have to do that they can rely on linkedin but with all that being said we really appreciate your time effort and your support my name's way Pettit. my name's tane kell and hey thanks to our buddy parag shaw for providing essentially all the information Wade ripped off for this podcast. For Plagiarism. <laughs> no, we gave a shout out. Oh, shout it's out. All, it's all good.
Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we've failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law, my new part-time employer. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises all along, but we didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this episode. Any last thoughts before we wrap this up? Both Dwayne and Greg Allman of the Allman Brothers were left-handed, but played guitar right-handed. Imagine how good they would have been if they'd played left-handed. <laughs>